Welcome to the EZE Podcast. Today I'm going to be reviewing UFC 224, which took place last night in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And I'm also going to throw a few minutes Bellator 199's way from San Jose, California. I don't know if a lot of you know this, but the song that entered into the podcast today, Bob O'Reilly, which most people know as Teenage Wasteland, performed by The Who, is actually the song that they play before the pay-per-view starts in a UFC arena if you're ever to attend a live event. It's a really cool thing. They dim down the lights. They show highlights of all the past UFC events that lead up to the one where you are. And then we even do a zoom out of the crowd after they do the little montage of the highlights while the song is playing. And it is a great experience. Uh, big time goosebump raising experience and really made me love the song. But just in case you're wondering, that's the relevance of why we started today because Today is going to be the first MMA review I'm going to do. Today I'm going to review UFC 224, which took place last night in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And I'm also going to throw a few minutes towards Bellator 199's fight from San Jose, California, which is the conclusion to their heavyweight Grand Prix first round, which was between Ryan Bader and uh, King Mo Lawal. But that's going to be at the end of the show. Uh, first, I'm going to get into a breakdown as I saw three of the bigger fights on the pay-per-view card for the UFC fight, uh, all featuring Brazilians. And um, usually when they do these cards in certain regions, they always tend to have people from that area on the card. So a lot of the fights uh, featured a Brazilian fighter, which I think is incredibly smart and helps to sell out not just the pay-per-view buys, but it helps to sell out attendance. Everywhere you want to go, you also want to make as much money as you can at the gate. So, you know, the UFC is definitely not against money, and they're trying to make it every way possible. But the same thing you'll see if they go to England. You're going to have a lot of English fighters on the card, or Australia. They're going to get as many Australian, New Zealand fighters as they can uh, possibly on the card to really pack that fan interest in the local base. But I'm going to be going through uh, three of the bigger fights that aired on the pay-per-view card. Uh, it's going to be Vitor Belfort and Leota Machida. I'm going to go through the main event, which was the Amanda Nunez and Raquel Pennington fight. And I'm also going to be talking about the Ronaldo Jacare Souza versus Kelvin Gastelum fight. The other two fights, I will say what the result was, but I won't be spending too much time from that. Other than that, I'm going to go through my likes and dislikes from the event. And then I'm going to just hit a couple topics. But that's pretty much what we're talking about today. So let's get right into it. My review of the three fights, I want to start with the Vitor Belfort Leoto Machida fight. And the reason I want to start with that one is because these guys are really established. They've been along, around for a long, long time. Uh, and it ends up being very significant. Uh, and I'll get to that. I don't want to spoil anything right now um, by saying who wins and who loses. But anyway... This was the fight that kicked off the pay-per-view card. It's a middleweight fight between Vitor the Phenom Belfort and Leoto the Dragon Machida. Both guys are former light heavyweight champs. Vitor Belfort comes in ranked number nine in the middleweight division now. Both of these guys have moved down to middleweight. Leota Machida comes in ranked number 12 in the division. The betting favorite was Leota Machida at minus 235. Vitor Belfort came in at a plus 185 for you betting guys. That's, uh, that's where the line was. So Vitor Belfort also was sporting a 26-13 and 13 record with one no contest. And Leota Machida had a record of 23-8. and eight. Vitor Belfort's style, if you haven't seen him before, both guys are southpaws for the most part. Leota Machida will switch it up a lot and, and go orthodox as well as southpaw. But if you've never seen the guys, just to so you can picture what these guys' styles are, Vitor Belfort is a kickboxer and is well-versed in jiu-jitsu, but is really known for lightning quick hands. Leota Machida is a karate fighter who really uses his range uh, tries to counterpunch a lot, slides out of the way, is probably one of the tougher guys to hit uh, anywhere north of 170 pounds in the UFC, probably in its history, I would say. I can't think of anybody that's been more elusive over their career um, than that guy. Another thing to mention is that both of these guys are getting up in age. You know, they're in their upper 30s or 40s. I believe Vitor Belfort is 41, and I think uh, Leonardo Machida is 39. I'm not positive on that. I, I think that's what their age is. 
Um, but anyway, let's get right into the first round. The first round, there was not much action in the first few minutes. There was a whole lot of feeling each other out. Machida usually starts pretty slow because he just kind of ranges and waits for you to make a mistake, and guys don't know what to do with him. It's tough to size up Leota Machida. So Machida was switching stances and really keeping his distance to where Vitor just didn't want to make the gamble early on to get inside. Machida hit a low kick uh, and almost caught Belfour clean with a high kick that's, that really seemed to make Vitor get gun shy, and it kind of slowed down the action even more. So the, the whole first half of the first round really was uneventful. Vitor, in the last minute and a half of the round, started blocking on the way in and getting Machida up against the cage to try and unleash some punches. So after a while, he was just like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to duck or I'm going to parry uh, or I'm just going to cover and then try and get inside and land something as much as I can. It really seemed kind of a careless strategy. He did, he wasn't comfortable. Vitor never looked comfortable in the first. He he just he really didn't. Um, and getting Machida up against the cage and keeping him there is nearly impossible. He is so slick. It's like you know catching a a chicken or something. I mean he, he's just he's out every direction. He's very good with his footwork. Uh, Although Vitor was able to land a few, but nothing clean. Machida landed a few kicks. Uh, there's really not much to talk about in that first round. Uh, I scored the round for Machida 10-9 just because I felt like he landed really the only strikes. It, it, even if it was only six or so, he's the only one that really landed any strikes during the round. So I gave the first round to Machida. During the break of the first to second round, Faraz Sahabi, who is the head coach at TriStar, which is in Montreal, I believe. I know it's in Canada. But that's where Vitor Belfort is holding his camp now. And Faraz gave him some really good advice about how to corner him and trying to get into the body. And so I was really interested out of the break to see how Vitor is going to try and implement that and corner uh, Machida. Because I, I just think trying to... To pick him apart or to headhunt, as some people would say, is is really pointless with Machida because it's it's tough to find him. You really got to close to find Machida, uh, and that's really tough to do because he's such a good counter striker. So anyway, the second round started, and it started a lot faster. Vitor was trying to blitz. The crowd started chanting Vitor, uh, which is kind of confusing because both guys are from Brazil. But I assume it's because he was the guy being the aggressor. So the crowd seemed to really be behind Vitor, give him a little bit of energy and confidence. And he was starting to throw a few more punches. So he's really starting to get a little bit more active. Uh, a minute in, Leoto front kicked Belfour in the face, reminiscent of Anderson Silva uh, versus Belfour, which if you haven't seen the highlight for that, it is an all-time highlight in the UFC, one that would be played during the Bob O'Reilly song of everything that you go to. And as much as Vitor was trying to get more active and the crowd was behind him, this, this kick knocked him out cold. It was a front kick uh, using his left kick, and uh, he fell back like he was making a snow angel. And Machida stood in front of him like a Brazilian Superman with his hands on his hips. And then he bowed uh, to him and then knelt in front of him. And they used to be training partners. So there was a lot of respect shown from Machida. He stayed down in, uh, in a kneeling stance until the doctors revived uh, Vitor, made sure he was okay. So, yeah, that was just an explosive knockout and one you're going to see on UFC highlights for the rest of your life. It was a huge one, and it just came out of nowhere. Vitor never saw it, caught him right on the chin. Um, it was it was a great shot. So, unfortunately, about that, after Machida won and moved to twenty four and eight, Vitor Belfour got an interview as well. Which usually you don't see the guy that gets knocked out be interviewed at all. It's not a good thing uh, to have happen if you ever saw the Cormier Jones fight. Cormier had just been knocked out and ended up crying while they were interviewing him, and a lot of people really condemned them doing that. However, they went to interview Vitor, and the reason was because Vitor ended up leaving his gloves in the ring, and he retired and said a, a thank you to the crowd, which he repeated multiple times, which also lets you know it's probably time because the guy was severely concussed, and that's why I think he was repeating himself a, a few extra times, so... 
it was apropos that you know it was it, that he was hanging them up. Everything was was correct. That that's what he needed to do. That that was the right call, I believe. So anyway, I'll get back to more about Vitor uh, a little bit later when we go into one of the topics I want to hit on on him. So I will pick that back up in just a second. But uh, moving on to the next fight. The next fight that I want to talk about was Ronaldo Souza, better known as Jacare, which I believe is Portuguese for crocodile. He always comes in crawling like a crocodile, and uh, they a lot of his fans do like the gator chomp, if you've ever seen the Florida Gators. But this was the co-main event of the evening, and this was also at middleweight. Jacare came in. With the number two ranking, and Kelvin Gastelum, the guy he was fighting, who has no nickname, came in at the number five ranking. Jacare is 38 years old, where Gastelum's only 26, so big age difference. But on the other side of that, the disadvantage for Gastelum being the younger fighter, uh, which the advantage is being the younger fighter, but his disadvantage is that he's only five foot nine inches tall and used to be a 170 pound, 70 pound uh, fighter. And Jacare is six foot one, so and also has the experience being twenty five five and one. Kelvin Gastelum's only had eighteen fights, where he's fifteen and three. Jacare is a decorated jiu-jitsu world champion. He was also the strike force middleweight champion. Kelvin Gastelum won the Ultimate Fighter season seventeen uh, when he beat Uriah Hall, who was the heavy favorite that year, but. Really, the base style, of course, for Jacare is jiu-jitsu versus the base style being wrestling for Kelvin Gastelum. So a little bit of a height disadvantage, and usually when you see a wrestler, you think they're going to want to take it to the ground. Kelvin Gastelum really doesn't use his wrestling offensively too much. He uses it defensively and tries to stand up. He's got a great chin. This guy's head is humongous. He's got a chin that... You, can't, you just can't knock him out. He can take so many punches and look like there's no wear and tear and keep on coming. So it's a tough matchup for Jacare to knock him out. And stylistically, you would think the wrestler would try and take the other guy down, but nobody wants to go to the ground with Jacare. He is literally one of the toughest guys on the ground and just world class. When he gets a hold of you, he clamps down on you, which is why he's got the nickname and the moniker of the crocodile because when this guy grabs a hold of you you do not move he stays to you like glue I mean, it is it is a done deal if you let this guy get in a good position so right into the fight uh, round one starts there's a lot of clinching against the cage by Souza Jacare Souza and he's landing a bunch of knees really controlling Gastelum Jacare got a high single leg and went for a leg lock off of the single leg to try and get it to the ground, then transition from the leg lock to a sweep into side control. It was amazing. It was a very slick move done by only a high-level black belt. Not where you want to be against the Jiu-Jitsu World Champion if you're Gastelum. Jacare gets full mount, and out of that full mount, Gastelum tries to roll out of it, and Jacare instantly transitions to an arm bar. The armbar must have been held there for about 45 seconds or so. Gastelum defended, uh, but Jacare was really, really going for it. Gastelum got out of the armbar right as the buzzer sounded. And I'm not even so sure that Jacare just didn't let it go when the buzzer sounded. It was tough to, to see which happened first. But for me, I felt like he was so close to the armbar, I almost would consider a 10-8 round. Um, and I even scored it as 10-8 watching it the first time. When I watched it again, I was like, okay, I'm on the fence. I could see 10-9. I could see 10-8. It really, to me, depends on whether Gastelum got out of the armbar before the buzzer or if he let it go after the buzzer. Because if Jacare had another 30 seconds and didn't release it because of the buzzer sound, I feel like he could have finished the fight. And a lot of judges don't fairly score near submissions if a guy never gets out of it if they're saved at the buzzer because that's really right at the end of the fight that's the same thing as knocking a guy down and close to finishing him with punches either way i'll move on i digress but i had jacare winning that first round 10 to 8 second round 
Gastelum started landing some shots on the feet. Jacare was really tiring and looking desperate to clinch Jacare, uh, which was surprising. He, he reversed a few clinches from Jacare, and it really looked like he must be getting tired. And when they separated and you saw Jacare breathe deep a couple times and his punches started looking sluggish, you knew you knew something was wrong with Jacare. And... But then just as soon as I say that, and this is kind of the story of the fight, Jacare gets some life back in him and lands three right hands in a row. Gaslam was still moving forward and landing, and then he hit a one-two. On If you're not familiar with that, that's a jab straight hand, and Gaslam's a southpaw, so that would have been a straight right hand and then a, a straight left hand. And he dropped Jacare. Jacare goes down and looks in serious trouble. Gaslam followed him up with a lot of ground and pound, but he didn't want to follow him all the way to the ground and stay there with Jacare, which is smart, but it gave him so much time to recover. Uh, and Gaslam even ended up stepping away and letting the ref uh, make Jacare stand up to where they were back on their feet. And now Jacare's kind of out of harm's way. But when they stand up, Gaslam doesn't go right at him. I almost felt like he was a little bit too patient. And Jacare had enough energy and enough wherewithal that he started throwing head kicks. He started throwing big punches. And he really just started winging it. Really, really in desperation mode. And Gaston just stayed patient. Jacare landed a big left hand. Then he landed a big right. And then it seemed like the tide was really going to switch. But Gaston just kept walking through it. Seemed unfazed by any of the punches that Jacare were landing. The crowd was really reacting, being a Brazilian pro uh, crowd, um, was really reacting to the shots Jacare was landing. But like I said, Gaston just walked right through him, and then he landed a huge left hand uh, that hurt Jacare a bit. And the horn sound, and you really realized how hurt Jacare was from that left hand when after the round, Jacare couldn't make it to his corner. He stumbled to the corner. He almost fell on the referee. So not only is he stumbled, he looks exhausted. I absolutely give that round to Kelvin Gastelum. I had him at 10-9 for that round. So that still has, in my on my scorecard at this point in time, I still have Jacare up a point, but there's not a lot of 10-8 rounds given in MMA. So I could also see it as, it's a pick em fight at this point in time. The third and final round is going to decide who the winner is. So, and that's ultimately what it comes down to, not to spoil it too much. But uh, third round comes out, and there's a big counter right hand right away from Jacare. He seems like he's recovered a little bit and has a little bit more wind in him. Uh, solid punches land from Gastelum. He's really starting to be on point. Another counter right from Jacare. Gastelum sprawls on a Jacare takedown attempt. And after that takedown attempt, Jacare got up seeming tired again, like it was right back at the end of the second round. Jacare seemed to be do, going on all heart. He got a takedown against the cage, but was so tired, Gaslam just scrambled right away from it. Jacare uh, uh, appeared to complain at some point in time to the ref after he got up about maybe Gaslam had like Vaseline on him or was greased up to where that Jacare just couldn't hold on to him, which... I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't heard a follow-up interview. I'm, I'm anxious to see what Jacare says through a translator uh, explaining what he was talking about there. But that's how I took it. It looked like, and even the commentators, I think John Anik uh, said something about uh, that he thought he was complaining about him being greased. Um, anyway, I look forward to hearing what, what's going on with that. But Jacare was exhausted, like I said. And he got exhausted to the point where he wasn't even putting his hands up in the third round. But Gaslam just didn't put his foot on the gas. He stayed patient. He landed punches. They exchanged a little bit. Jacare went for a single leg. Gaslam scrambled again. And then as soon as he scrambled out of the single leg, I uh, really poured on punches for the last few seconds. Really close fight. I had the last round 10-9 for Kelvin Gaslam. Now, like I said, the way I scored it, which was 10-8 for Jacare, then 10-9, 10-9 for Gaslam in the second and the third, respectively. I had the fight a draw. However, when it came to the judges, first judge scored at 29-28 for Gastelum, second judge 29-28 for Jacare, and third judge 29-28 for Gastelum. So Gastelum ended up winning by split decision, and there was no 10-8 round, which doesn't surprise me. It's tough to hand out 10-8 rounds. They don't like to do it a lot. So I understand that. Um, I, I could see Gastelum going on 
um, to challenge for the middleweight title next, but we'll get to that. That's going to be one of the topics we're going to talk about after I break down this last fight, which is the uh, the title fight, the main event. Uh, it's a women's bantamweight title fight. If you're not familiar with what the weight is for women's bantamweight, that's 135 pounds. And that's between the champ, Amanda Nunez, against the number two ranked challenger, Raquel Pennington. Amanda Nunez's nickname is the Lioness, and she fights in a Muay Thai style and brings in a record of 15-4 and four, and is the overall betting favorite at minus 850. So you would have to bet $850 to win 100 on Amanda Nunez. Raquel Pennington, her nickname is Rocky. Her style is boxing. She comes in at a plus 525 underdog line, which means if you bet $100, you win $525 if you're betting on her. Her record's not all that impressive. It's 9-6, and six, but she's really she started slow in her career and has really had some good wins lately, and she's tough. That, that's, that's kind of her thing. She's really, really tough. So let me, there's a lot of rounds here, so I'm going to kind of fly through this one and just kind of give it to you how I wrote it down. I'm not going to read into this fight too much. I'm just going to give you what my notes were, and hopefully it doesn't you know, read too robotical, and we'll see how it is. So anyway, first round, Amanda's much faster. She was attacking the legs, uh, really doing some damage there. She knocked Pennington down with leg kicks multiple times, which you don't see early on in the first round. You don't see that early, at any point in time really in the fight. Uh, Pennington started lifting her leg and trying to counter, but Nunez is stalking and trapping her up against the cage. First round goes to Nunez, all Nunez, landed 29 total strikes. I gave the round to her 10-9. Um, she landed 11 strikes to the leg, and all 11 were damaging shots. Round two, Nunez was starting a little slow. Pennington started to get to the middle of the ring a lot more and wasn't trapped up against the cage so much. Pennington, Pennington now is 0-4, and, and when I say Pennington, I, I might say Rocky, I might say Raquel, so Raquel, Pennington, Rocky. Uh, Pennington's 0-4 on her takedown of attempts at this point. Nunez has gotten the clinch a few times, but hasn't landed anything substantial. Nunez gets the clinch and lands two knees just as soon as I get finished writing she she has got the clinch but hadn't landed anything substantial. It was like it, literally as soon as I put the period after substantial, Nunez got the clinch and threw two knees. Almost like, oh yeah, well how about this? Um, but Pennington was close to a takedown and gets up against the cage and ends up getting it and lands in side control. Starts landing a few short elbows and doing some good work in there. You know, Rocky's starting to show a little bit of heart, a little bit of life. Nunez gets up. After I think she was down for about a minute, and they exchanged a little bit on the feet, which ended up making the round close. I gave it to Nunez because of the damage earlier with the knees, but this round was much closer and proved to, that we might have you know, an exciting fight going forward and, and more competitive than it seemed in the first round, which is exciting. The third round, Nunez was mixing it up. Her, her high and low strikes were very, very accurate. They were very good. She was landing low. She was landing high. She was mixing in combinations, uh, really making it tough to predict and, and defend. Pennington, Pennington was tough, and she was trying to counter each strike, but she's just a step slower than Nunez almost at all times. It's, she's already gone. Nunez has faded back by the time that she's throwing the strike to counter. Pennington rushed in. Uh, and right at Nunez and then ran right into a double leg slam which that was that was really nice that was a, it was a sweet takedown from Nunez who changed levels and got the double leg I'll get back to Brazilian fans are chanting something that I'm going to get to in my likes and dislikes but Brazilian fans are chanting something non-stop that even gets noticed from the commentators but it happens in every fight in Brazil every time there's an American fighter fighting which is Raquel Pennington um, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back around to that. Nunez uh, was not able to score from the top position when she slammed her down. Uh, Pennington tried to single leg Nunez after the takedown when she got up, but it failed. And then she tried on a double leg attempt. That failed. Nunez landed a big right and a knee to the body that appeared to hurt Rocky right at the end of the bell. Raquel Pennington stayed down after the bell for an extra 15 seconds. So I gave round three to Nunez, no doubt about it. The damage just at the end would have would have done it for me. 10-9 for Nunez. So I have her 10-9 all three rounds so far. 
Fourth round started. Nunez was really starting to land the right hand and the jab off of the low kick. So she would land that right low kick and then throw a punch right behind it. Again, going low and high. Uh, the, there was a takedown from Nunez, her second of the uh, fight so far. Pennington kept trying the butterfly guard to lift her up and try and get a sweep, but it, it wasn't working for her. So she was just basically switching to full guard and, and holding the arms. But out of that this time, she worked her way up and was on her feet again. So they're standing again. Nunez is looking for the clinch a lot now. Grabs the clinch, lands knees to the body, gets the clinch again, more knees. This time, I think she caught her in the nose one time. I'm not sure if it's the one that... I'm pretty sure it broke her nose. I'm not sure which of these knees broke her nose, but in the two times she got the clinch here, she didn't just do body work, but she snuck a knee in high that really seemed to instantly uh, have blood gushing out of Pennington's nose, which is usually a sign of a broken nose, but it's definitely a sign of a broken nose when you see the close-up on her after the round, and her nose is now crooked. So, um, Pennington, at the, end of the, at the end of the round, she got to the cage to stall, but as soon as the round ended and they did the close-up, you knew it was a broken nose, and I gave that round as well, 10-9 to Nunez. Now, this is the part where it gets pretty interesting with this fight, and this is kind of the story of this fight. So, in between the rounds, Pennington, the, the camera crew was really following her and trying to listen to what her corner was telling her, and the mic was right there. So, Pennington stood up and tried to turn to look towards the outside of the cage to talk to her coach, but the mic was there and picked up everything she said. And Pennington asked the coach to let her quit during the break. Uh, specifically, she said, uh, I, I want to be done. And she does not want to go back out there for the fifth round. When the coach hears that, he says, I know it hurts. It'll heal later. You got to stay in there. You got to suck it up. And doing the coach bit, which to some degree, I guess I understand that's his job to talk up his fighter. But at the same time, if she's got a broken nose and she's been losing every round of the fight, aren't you just sending her out there to take more damage? And isn't part of a coach's job also to protect the fighter? This is something I really didn't agree with. I didn't see there was any chance for her to go out and throw a Hail Mary. And even if that's the strategy, like, let's just see what we can do, that's not a good strategy. That's just blind hope. So I, I didn't love that part. Um, but i got to say I respect... I respect Rocky's toughness because Raquel Pennington turned and put her mouthpiece in and went back out there for the fifth round, which was crazy to me, but she did it. So all props to her. I, I respect her. I, I don't agree with the coaches. Don't necessarily respect their decision, but here we are to the fifth round. So fifth round starts. Pennington's nose looks really bad. Nunez lands a few strikes and gets a double leg takedown really quickly. Nunez lands a shot to the wounded nose while she's on top of her, and blood starts coming out all over the mat. Pennington rolls away, masking her face and covering up, and Nunez starts throwing punches, and that's it. Mark Goddard, the referee, steps in and stops it at 225 in the fifth, thus confirming a bad decision from the corner where they just sent their fighter out there to take more damage. I really don't understand it. But to hit on that, uh, the notes of Amanda Nunez, that was her third title defense at the Bantamweight division. And something also pretty cool about the end of the fight was Nunez brought in the uh, opposing fighter, Raquel Pennington's wife. And these are the, these are the two, both couples, um, because, excuse me, Amanda Nunez also brought her girlfriend in. So, both couples were standing there together doing the interview at the end, which was kind of odd, but also thought pretty cool that she was standing up um, for, for for the rights of homosexuals. And um, and there's she was Amanda Nunez is actually the first ever lesbian UFC champion uh, that I know of. I don't nothing else has been reported to deny that. And she said, let's see, she said it was the first time that she fought a friend. Uh, she, after requesting Tisha Torres, who's Raquel Pennington's wife, to come in to the cage, Nunez and her own girlfriend declared that the two couples were going to go to the bar for a beer to celebrate, which I thought was pretty cool, um, and that she's also standing for something and, 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 and cares about more than herself. 
even though she had just won the title and it was a big deal for her, which I understand. So uh, what I want to move on to now, that's the three fights I want to break down. The other two fights on the pay-per-view were John Lineker won with a knockout in round three over Brian Kelahar. Kelachar, Kelchar. I'm sorry, I've never heard of this guy. I'm probably butchering his name, um, but I doubt he's here in the podcast, so I'm probably safe. You don't want to make too many UFC guys mad. Uh, the other fight was Mackenzie Dern, who won with a submission in round one over Amanda Cooper, which I'm going to touch base on that one too, because although impressive, there's something I, I don't really like or agree with about that fight. Uh, the next thing I want to go through is my likes and dislikes from the event. So, my likes from the event. I'm going to alternate. I'm going to go like, dislike, like, dislike. So my first like from the event is how passionate the fans are in Brazil. Love how the passion. They are chanting the whole time. They are really into it. They support their own my dislike links to that most of the time when americans fighting they chant you are gonna die to them not cool a little bit excessive like we can't mix it up there's no other chant we can get in there like you are gonna die that's what we're going with the whole time and they literally will chant it throughout the night the whole event and this isn't all of the the brazilian locations you know you got in port i don't know how to say it in portuguese but you're just getting you're gonna die to you the whole match which most americans probably don't speak portuguese so you don't know what they're saying but even the announcers at one point in time pointed it out uh and and were like come on like mix it up give us another phrase please something else you know pull for who you like but i think you were going to die is a little excessive so that's definitely a dislike for me my next like the growing skill of amanda nunez amanda nunez is getting better and better every fight and she's starting to be at least mentioned for the pound-for-pound pound number one woman fighter in the world now. She has a quick win over Misha Tate. She has a quick win over Ronda Rousey. And she's now defended the belt three times. What more do you need from her? She's got great stand-up. She's starting to show some takedowns and mix that in. Her clinch game is strong. She's a well-rounded competitor. And... Uh, so one of my likes is the growing skill of Nunez and really enjoying watching her fight. My dislike is the promotion of Amanda Nunez. It's such a lack of promotion. It, it, it seems like the UFC is begrudgingly promoting her. She, she's on the back part of posters. She's not talked about a lot. I, I don't understand why they don't promote her more. They have a star there and she really doesn't get the attention she deserves. My, one of my likes... The heart of Raquel Pennington. What she showed in going out there the fifth round, even after she knew her nose was broken and she was done, and the fact that her coach told her to, so she just said, okay, sucked it up, bit down on the mouthpiece and went out there. I respect her heart immensely. She really she really tried to fight the whole time. She was not looking for a way out uh, while she was in there. She kept throwing punches. She kept doing everything she can while being outclassed. Absolutely respect that. Dislike the coach making her go out and fight the fifth. I absolutely dislike this. I've already spoke on it. This to me is just falls under the coach umbrella of things that you need to know to do right and wrong. And he made the right choice or the wrong choice, excuse me, here and got his fighter harmed more than she needed to be by being tough rather than being smart. One of my likes, the co-main event. I really like the co-main event between Jacare and Kelvin Gaslam. What a back-and-forth war. A lot of heart displayed the whole time. They both faced adversity. Uh, great co-main event. Definite like for me. Dislike. That Jacare had to take a loss in that fight is a dislike for me. And I'm not complaining about the judging. I agree with the judging. I had, I had it as a draw, but I could see Gaslam winning. But just the fact that somebody's got to take a loss in a fight like that where both of them really deserve a win for their performance and how much they put on a show for the fans. I hate that Jacare has to take a loss in that fight or anybody has to take a loss in that fight. So that's my dislike for that. One of my likes, I like that Mackenzie Dern got a first round submission. It was very impressive. She was very happy about it. 
My dislike. She missed weight by seven pounds. Seven pounds. She has now missed weight as many times as she has made weight in the straw weight division, which if you're not familiar is 115 pounds. If you miss weight by seven pounds, it's not just enough to give the person you're fighting a percentage of the check. You should not be allowed to fight if you can't be within at least five pounds of the weight. There has to be a threshold there. She's basically a whole weight class above the person she was fighting. That's not fair. That's why they instituted weight classes for safety. They should have canceled the fight and given the other girl her show money is what they should have done in my opinion. She needs to move up. Mackenzie Dern I'm talking about needs to move up to flyweight at 125 pounds. You can't miss weight by 7 pounds and be allowed to fight. That's not fair. One of my likes. Machida's front kick KO. Amazing. Highlight for the rest of forever. Great. One of my dislikes. Every guy he keeps doing this front kick to in the face is a legend, and they keep retiring afterwards. I'm happy to see it, but man, he's just taking out legends left and right. Uh, the, the first he did was, was uh, Randy Couture. He actually landed the karate kid, the crane kick that uh, Ralph Macchio was practicing on the stump um, that he hit Johnny with in the end. He actually landed that in a UFC fight and kicked Randy Couture's tooth out when he landed it. It went flying across the, the mat or the octagon. And now he's kicked Vitor Belfort and he hangs up his gloves. And he's out. I mean, two of the biggest legends in the sports history. And now Machida wants to fight Bisbing. So we'll see if this, uh, and I'm going to touch base on this in just a little bit. We're going to see if this front kick retirement tour continues on for Machida. Beautiful move. Hate that the guys he hits it with, we never get to see again. One of my likes. The idea of an Amanda Nunez-Chris Cyborg super fight. That is something I really like out of this. She's basically cleaned out most of the division, Amanda Nunez, I'm talking about. So a, a big fight at this point in time, a big payday means finally some, some promotion, some respect. And this is her chance to really, really make a claim on being the pound-for-pound pound number one woman in the world. And Cyborg's getting up there in age a little bit. It's, the time is now for her to strike. She needs to make her move now if Amanda Nunez wants to be a real star and get some serious promotional money. Dislike that too many fights are labeled as super fights now today. Why would I call Cyborg versus Nunez a super fight? Because they're champions from different weight classes. Nunez is the 135 pound champion. Cyborg is the 145 pound champion. When you have two champions from different weight classes, plus some hype behind them, that's a super fight. Conor McGregor fighting whoever he's fighting isn't a super fight. Even if it sells a ton of pay-per-views, doesn't necessarily make it a super fight just because it's got one really popular guy in it. A super fight is when two dominant fighters from two different divisions come together to meet, like Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather. That's a super fight. The results might not have been a super fight, but it's when people move up and down in division and throw caution to the wind, and they're two people that you can't see either of them losing. That's a super fight. Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, I know they're in the same division for the most part, um, but that was a super fight. Evander Holyfield, who moved up from cruiserweight to heavyweight, won fights there and then fought Tyson. That was a super fight. You have to have the buzz around it to be a super fight. So my dislike, too many things getting labeled as super fights. My last like, this UFC card was tied for the most stoppages in UFC history. I believe with UFC Fight Night 55, I believe, but 11 stoppages on the card. So that means there was only one or two fights that went the full distance. That's great for fans. When you have the fights moving right on along and you have exciting finishes, that's fantastic. I've been to, I've been to UFC cards where there's a lot of decisions and the night just gets long and you're just ready to get to the final fights. And even when you get there, if it's a big fight, you just seem a little less hyped up when you've kind of been yawning or just being like, come on, get this over with, with some of the other ones. So 11 finishes, that's incredible. All right, so those are my likes and dislikes. The next topic I want to go on to is I want to talk about Vitor Belfort and his chances of making the Hall of Fame. Now, Vitor has been around for a long, long time. I believe Vitor's first UFC was... I don't know the number exactly. I should have looked this up, but I know it's before UFC 20. 
This was UFC 224. So he has been around for 200 plus UFC cards. Not that he's fought in all of them. You know, that'd be crazy. But, you know, he's been around for forever. And he's done so many things. So just to talk about a little bit of what his resume is. Vitor Belfour won his first fight, his first professional fight, in 12 seconds. He won his first four fights all in a minute 17 or less. And there was just one fight that was a minute and 17 seconds. The other fights, the other three fights that he had right out the gate, were 30 seconds or less, which is crazy. I mean, just finishing people with lightning-fast hands. He also has 26 career UFC fights, which is incredibly impressive. He fought 17 men that were world champions at one point in time with a serious organization. He holds wins over some of the greats. Vanderlei Silva, Randy Couture, Heath Herring, although not a great, and Tank Abbott, not a great. But those guys are heavyweights to let you know that Vitor Belfort fought at heavyweight, light heavyweight, and middleweight in his career. Uh, so there's some big guys that he fought up here. And a lot of times he was fighting a couple times in one night early on back in the day. He beat Matt Lindland, middleweight champion. He beat Rich Franklin, middleweight champion. He beat Akiyama, huge Japanese sensation. He beat Anthony Johnson. He beat Dan Henderson, middleweight champion, light heavyweight champion. He beat Nate Marquardt. He beat middleweight champion Luke Rockhold. He beat middleweight champion Michael Bisping. So he beat a ton of guys and fought the who's who list. I mean, his losses are to... The Randy Couture's, Tito Ortiz, uh, uh, I think he lost to Chuck Liddell. Uh, even his losses are against such high-quality competition. Leota Machida, against such high-quality competition that I think you have to put Vitor in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I think he's a, he's a, if there was a first ballot, which they don't have the ballots, it, the UFC is a private company, so they just decide it. But, um, yeah, I think Vitor Belfort definitely is a lock for the Hall of Fame. And I think even the guy he fought, Leota Machida, will probably be a lock for the Hall of Fame when he make, when he decides to leave his gloves. That moving forward, my next topic's on Leota Machida. Will this retirement title run continue? And if he loses again, will he retire? Yes and yes. I think he's going to get the Michael Bisping fight next. And I think he, I don't know if he lands it with a front kick, but I think he beats Michael Bisping and Bisping retires. And that, I think that puts him in a number one contender fight because Bisping was just recently the champion. And I think if Machida wins that, he draws somebody like a Chris Weidman or he draws Luke Rockhold or somebody a high caliber guy that'll be a number one contender match so i do think leota machida gets himself in a number one contender match but i think by the time that happens that's gonna be eight nine months maybe ten months down the road maybe even a year and i don't think he wins that number one contender match if it's against a wideman or a rockhold so i see leota machida having two more fights in him beating bisbing retiring bisbing but then losing to someone hopefully not in decimating fashion hopefully it's competitive but i don't see him beating either one of those guys and then i see himself probably hanging it up because stylistically he can't get guys to the ground and hold them there which helps guys that get a little bit older if they still got that wrestling background he's a a timing a speed a counter puncher a karate fighter that needs all of all of those skills of athleticism and as they go i have to imagine it diminishes his ability a little bit. So that's what I think with Machida. I think it's kind of a, a yes and no. And who knows, maybe he beats Bisbing and then catches the next guy he fights. And if he does that and he has those two wins, that'd be four wins in a row for him, former light heavyweight champion. I see him getting a title shot if he can do all those things. But that's a lot on his plate, and he's get, he's getting older. So we'll see. He's, he's right there at 40 years old. I, I like him. I've always pulled for him. I've seen him fight live once against Thiago Silva, and he was very, very impressive finishing that fight by knockout. Um, so I like I like Machida, but I, I think we're getting we're getting close to the end there. Uh, next topic: What's the future for Kelvin Gastelum after beating Jacare? For me, very simple, and I don't think this is going to take long at all to explain. I think he instantly gets the winner of Yoel Romero and 
Robert Whitaker in June. I think he he's there for a title shot. If he's not there for a title shot, he deserves a Chris Weidman or a Luke Rockhold type. So that's what I see next for Gastelum. I, I think he's right in the mix to get the number one contender spot or a shot for the title. Just depends how much they want to promote him. He's with, missed weight a few times, and a lot of times that'll that'll keep Dana White uh, keep you on Dana White's bad side. So, but I do like his weight class, 185, where he's got to be. He can't go up. He's only five foot nine, and I don't think he can make weight consistently at 170. So I think he's 185 for life, and I see him one fight away from the title or fighting for the title. So what's the future for Nunez? Already went over this one. Uh, it's as simple as well. She's got to fight Chris Cyborg at this point in time. Chris Cyborg Santos has been the pound for pound number one woman since. Long before Ronda Rousey came along, and while people were saying Ronda Rousey was the baddest woman on the planet, well, they just weren't educated on who else was out there because Chris Cyborg has been the best female fighter for a dozen years now. She has been the number one pound-for-pound woman in the world and hasn't given up the moniker. She's only lost once and was in a kickboxing match, and it was by decision. It wasn't like she got knocked out. She has flattened almost every person. And every time you see her, every opponent she goes up against, it is just a train. You cannot stop her. She is so strong, so vicious, and she takes no mercy. So we'll see how Nunez can do with her. Nunez has got good footwork, good striking. She'd have to catch Cyborg, though, because I think they're both going to stand. So it'll be close. It's going to be real fascinating to see if Amanda Nunez's growth and youth is going to be enough to catch Cyborg and how much longer can Cyborg stay at this level. There's always those fights where somebody gets clipped and knocked out and you realize, oh man, their time's passed. They're not they're not at the top of their game anymore. Um, I don't see that as, as where Cyborg is, but we'll see. That'll be a great fight. That'll be, that'll be what everybody hoped for with Rousey and Cyborg for so long, which was talked about, which I never thought that Rousey would do, uh, and she didn't. But we'll see. Uh, Nunez and Cyborg. That's that's what I'm looking forward to. All right, so uh, that's everything for UFC 224 uh, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. A great card, lots of fun to watch. If you haven't watched it, I suggest you get out there or get on YouTube. Look up MMA Core. You can usually get fights the day after. Um, for free, which is nice, where you don't have to pay the huge pay-per-view uh, fee. Uh, shout out to MMA Core for all that they do. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is the Bellator card. And so, a few words on the Bellator event. So, Bellator has a year-long heavyweight tournament. They call it the Heavyweight Grand Prix. They've really been promoting this hard. The problem is that most of the guys in said tournament are not heavyweights. There's light heavyweights and middleweights mixed into this tournament. I believe only four or five are actually heavyweights, which is kind of weird considering it's the heavyweight Grand Prix for the championship of the world. Really what they did is they took the few heavyweights they had and then put uh, their most marketable names that were fighting and could move up in weight in this tournament together. That's what it really is. But anyway, the... Uh, Bellator in Bellator 199's main event, the final fight of the eight-man tournament, the first round, uh, the final fight of excuse me, final fight of the first round in this eight-man tournament pitted two light heavyweights against each other, Ryan Bader and Muhammad Lawalt. The true heavyweight on the card was Czech Congo, who has broken a record for Bellator with 10 wins in the division and 6 wins straight the both by uh, the most by in both uh statistics by Czech Congo and he's not even in the tournament which makes no sense um so I don't understand what's going on with that and Congo won by knockout uh punch in the first round um but anyway uh there was also another fight uh where John Fitch beat Paul Daly John Fitch style which means wrestling him to a unanimous decision win. 20 of 31 career victories for John Fitch have been by decision. And after the fight, he called out Rory McDonald, who's a terrific fighter. And that should be a big fight for Bellator. Those are two high-level middle, uh, excuse me, welterweights. And that'll be a big fight uh, for Bellator because 
there's really not much depth in the division. Poor Paul Daly has to keep fighting all these wrestlers and held down. Um, and I know he doesn't like that. Shout out to Josh Koscheck punch. Um, but that's the next big fight for John Fitch and uh, Roy McDonald. So that'll be really exciting. I'll watch that one. The real reason I wanted to mention Bellator 199 was the main event, though. Ryan Bader, um, who knocked out Muhammad Lawal, better known as King Mo, in 15 seconds in the first round by landing a left hook and finishing with ground and pound. So my Ryan Bader story, uh, I met Ryan Bader one time in Las Vegas, and I saw him and said, hey, Ryan, how you doing? Can I get a picture? And he said, sure, no problem. And so I was talking to him for a second, and I, uh, I said, you know, good job on the Keith Jardine fight, really enjoyed it. Who are you fighting next? And before he answered me, I want to, or before I say his answer, I want to preface it with Forrest Griffin was my favorite UFC fighter of all time. Love Forrest Griffin. I used to explain to my friends back when UFC wasn't so popular how much I liked Forrest Griffin by saying I'd rather watch him fight than watch the Super Bowl. And uh, so that's, that's how big a deal Forrest Griffin is to me. He'd be on my Mount Rushmore, favorite four athletes probably. And Ryan Bader, so back to the question, I said, who are you fighting next? And Ryan Bader said, Forrest Griffin, I want to kick his, I'll say butt. I want to kick his butt. And I said, oh, man, that's not cool. And he said, so you want to take this picture? And I said, nope, and walked away. Um, So that's my Ryan Bader story, the one time I met him. But I do want to say congratulations, uh, Ryan Darth Bader, to moving into the semifinals of the heavyweight Grand Prix. Uh, he's going to fight heavyweight Matt Mitrione next. And then a middleweight, Chael Sonnen, is going to fight the all-time greatest heavyweight, Fedor Emelianenko, the last emperor, um, in the other side of the bracket. So that's the semifinals that are left for the Bellator heavyweight Grand Prix, which I look forward to seeing later on in the year, probably September, November, somewhere in there. They'll probably do those two fights. Uh, maybe sooner. Who knows? I don't know how much, how many injury concerns. I don't think Bader's hurt at all because he only fought for 15 seconds and landed one punch. But I don't know about Fedor. He's a little older. He might have time. He needs to get back. And I don't know where Mitrione and Chael Sonnen are health-wise. Although I saw Chael commenting and are uh, doing commentary on one of the fights, and he looked pretty good. So. Uh, I have one like and one dislike about Bellator just in general. I love, not like, I love Mauro Ronaldo, the announcer that does the play-by-play. He's great. And I completely dislike Michael C. Williams, the basically the Bruce Buffer of Bellator, the guy that does the introductions. He drives me insane. I really don't like listening to him. I fast-forward through his introductions every time, whereas I cut Bruce Buffers up really loud. But anyway, that's going to close out my Bellator 199 and my UFC 224 MMA review. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you get a chance to watch the Lomachenko fight, which is what I'm trying to do next, too. I'm hoping he wins and they set up a him versus Triple G because I'm very excited to see Lomachenko. I've not yet got a chance to see him, uh, hear great things. So that's probably what I'm going to be doing a little bit later on in the week. But for the rest of the night, I've got to cook my family and my mother a Mother's Day dinner. So to all you moms out there, happy Mother's Day. And to everyone, thank you so much for listening. Take it easy.